The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the word of the Lord. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. What wonderful worship this morning. Uh, Let's continue worshiping the Lord in prayer and then in his word. Dear Father, we are so privileged to even call you Father, to come to you, to be part of your family. Um, It is a wonderful blessing, something that only you could bring about, something that we are so grateful to be part of. Help us to hear from your word, speak to us, change us. I pray that you would uh, move each of us to be genuinely, authentically concerned for each other's spiritual condition, um, to represent your household in the way that we should. Please bless our time as we turn to your word. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so I want you to imagine, this will apply maybe to some more than others, but I want you to imagine that you have multiple children between the ages of 2 and 10, or somewhere around there and that you want to go on a date with your spouse. Maybe it's been a year since you've gone on a date. Unfortunately, this is probably too easy for some of you to imagine. If that's the case, please talk to Ruth or I. We want to watch your kids in the next month. But for the purpose of this illustration, let's pretend that it's your next-door neighbors. They're a sweet couple, maybe in their 60s. They offer to watch your kids. At first, you you politely decline, say, no, they're, they're a handful. But they say, no, we have grandkids coming in the next year. We want practice with children, so you gratefully concede. You come home, you give your kids the pep talk. You say they're being really kind. We're trying to reach out to them. You know, we've shared the gospel. They aren't believers, so be on your best behavior. And then you walk them over, and you go on your date. Now, this this is the first time your kids have been away from you in a long time. So they decide to make a name for the family. They're rude. They're rowdy, and they're running all over. So when you show up and you ask, so how did it go? Your neighbors just politely smile and say, it's been a long time since we've been along young children. Um, So you thank them. You bring your kids back home. And as you're putting them to bed, you're horrified as your 10-year-old just begins to tell you all the things that happened that night. What would you, as a parent, do in that situation? Would you not want your children to feel a proper sense of shame. You would want them to feel ashamed of their behavior, but not ashamed of themselves, not of their identity. You wouldn't belittle their identity. You wouldn't talk down to them and say, you are a rude child. You are selfish. You are unkind. Instead, you would tell them things like, the behavior that you had was rude. That's inconsistent with who you are. I know that you're not like this. This isn't how the children of God are. This isn't how the Yolmans behave. You remind them of their behavior, of their identity that informs their behavior. So you would invoke a temporary shame 
to hopefully bring about a permanent character change. You'd expect to see some form of repentance. Maybe for this example, the kids apologize, they write cards, and then they do something practical, like they go and weed the garden or all the landscaping rocks, small fingers. But the bottom line is that as a parent, your role would be to come alongside of them and to shepherd them through this, to bring about some sort of emotion of conviction to help them to reflect on this and to actually shape and influence a change in their heart. So I think that is what Paul is doing in our passage this morning. Paul, he wrote forcefully and sarcastically to bring about shame in the Corinthian believers. Not that they would be ashamed, that's what it says at the beginning of our passage, but that they, it's unavoidable that they would feel momentary shame. He has painfully highlighted the pride among them, the division among them, and he's about to launch into a very pointed rebuke about sexual immorality. So Paul, he wants the Corinthians to sense the severity of this situation so that they would repent. He isn't sending a shame-inducing letter as a last jab before he writes them off and says, you know what, I have other churches to take care of. Paul is deeply committed to them, like a father to his children. He's not about to just throw in the towel on spiritual parenting. Paul is in it for the long run. He's invested in their particular uh, maturity, and he's a man of authority and of action. He's not just going to stand by even when he's out of country. So he makes plans to go there himself, but in the meantime, he writes this letter, and he reassigns Timothy from Macedonia to go to Corinth. Paul, remember, had plenty of other churches to look after. There were so many unreached areas that he could have spent his time and focus on. But when it came to Corinth, Paul was too invested to ignore their unfaithfulness. So I've broken down our passage into three different sections, as you'll see in your outline. From verses 14 through 16, we see that Paul cared like a father because he led them into God's family. The church is an extended spiritual family, so we ought to act like a family. The second is from verses 16 through 17. We see that the Corinthians were called to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. We too are to imitate Christ and to be faithful depictions to each other. And third is going to be verses 17 through 21. We see Paul was very confident in his teaching and bold in admonishing unfaithfulness. And we too are to be bold in how we proclaim the gospel and uphold faithfulness. And we're going to step through the passage in three main segments and apply as we go. But here's the main point of the whole message in just one sentence. If you are a believer, then you are part of God's family and should care enough to correct unfaithfulness. So beginning with our first point, we are to care like God's family. Let's look at verses 14 through 16 again. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Clearly, Paul loves these people. I mean, just look at the emotion that's present in these words here. Paul is urging the Corinthians on the basis of their relationship as as their father. He's urging them. Other translations say beseech, beg, appeal. These are emotional requests that are rooted in love. This is very different than a demand from a top-down, heavy-handed, or you know, authoritarian leader. Paul is begging them to follow his ways because he loves them. This is for their good. 
Paul loves this messed up group of people, of sinful, ungrateful, and critical people. They're full of problems, and yet they're still full of pride. But as a father, Paul still loves them, and he calls them his beloved children. So how did Paul end up in this role? How did the MVP of early church history end up being so committed and invested to a messed up bunch of people? If you look at the second part of verse 15, Paul explains that he became their father with respect to Jesus by means of the gospel. The word that shows up as became is the same as begat. When you look through the genealogies and, you know, the Jesse begat David and, you know, Obed begat Jesse, it's the same word. In the same way that Jesse begat David, fathering him into the family of Abraham, similarly, Paul begat the Corinthians, fathering them into the family of God. But this wasn't by his own work. This was by the power of the gospel. You see, only the gospel can bring broken, messed up people into the family of God. God is redeeming people from every nation throughout history using a single gospel. People from all different backgrounds, from all different problems, all being assimilated into his family because of the gospel. And the gospel is simple in essence, but it's so complex in its implications. It's for every person who is unable to save themselves. That's everyone in this room. The gospel, simply put, is that mankind has rebelled against him. We've all rebelled against God. God created us to have a relationship with him. He originally wanted us to have this intimacy that would last for a lifetime, and we broke it. And yet he still pursued us. Even while we were his enemies, we pushed him away, we reject him. He came to pick us up and paid our price. We couldn't approach him because of our sin, but Jesus came, paid the penalty, after living the life that we should have lived, because we didn't, he then died the, life, or died the death that we deserved. And now we get to be with him simply by belief. All it takes is belief and allegiance to Jesus, and he's taking care of the rest. And because of that, we have a chance to be with him for eternity. It's truly that simple, and it's that beautiful. But you've been bought with a price if you pledge your allegiance to him. And you belong to him, but it's a beautiful thing to belong to him. Because once you belong you become a child of God and you are placed into his family by the power of the gospel. So it was by the means of Paul's ministry that the Corinthians were then fathered into God's family. And so Paul tells them in verse 15, in the first part, he says, For even if you had 10,000 others to, read, to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. That's from the New Living Translation, which I think is helpful because the word... In um, the ESV, or the English Standard Version, that says countless, it actually is just the word 10,000. It's the largest number that the Greek language had, that actually had a label to it. I didn't know this, but the English um, largest number is Googleplex. I had to Google that. Isn't that kind of ironic? Um, but it's, So this is basically just conveying the concept of infinite guides. It'd be like if you were to say, even if you were to have a bazillion teachers, you only have one dad. So that's what Paul's telling them. So we need to ask ourselves, why is one dad superior to Googleplex guides? Because when we see the word guide here, it doesn't mean what I think most of us, or at least what I had envisioned. It's not necessarily how you'd envision a mentor or a life coach. This is more um, the term that we actually get our word pedagogue from. And if you're familiar with that, it's, it's a, a schoolmaster or kind of a very strict 
pedantic teacher. And this role was often fulfilled by a slave, someone who was largely just responsible for making sure they get safely from one place to another, that they're going to school, that they're not misbehaving, and just that they're safe and uh, being responsible. But that was really all they were responsible for. It was a job to them. So I want to contrast the attributes to just show you the difference between a pedagogue and a father. So we'll show it on the screen above. And I think when you see these two terms side by side, think of you know, father versus guide or father versus pedagogue, I think you'll see why countless guides cannot replace the role of one father. A pedagogue is pedantic, focused on being correct in trivial and minute details, whereas a father is holistic, concerned about the overall lifestyle and well-being of their child. A pedagogue is known for being strict. And while a father may be strict at times, it's characterized by love. It's being done for the betterment of that child. A pedagogue is known to be dull, focused on the details, not the person. They're not concerned about the person. A father is engaging, penetrating the soul. A pedagogue is task-oriented, that's concerned with compliance. A father is relational, that's concerned with harmony and intimacy. A pedagogue is in it for the pay. A father, their identity is rooted in this role. A pedagogue sticks to the facts. A father will use those same facts to help inform life decisions. A pedagogue cares about the precision of a topic. A father cares about their character and whether they're grasping it. In essence, a pedagogue is essentially a supervisor for their own agenda, whereas a father is more like an advocate for a child to fulfill and be faithful to their identity. So when you look at that, can you see why Paul would contrast these two roles? It's not to highlight Paul's own superiority, but it's to show that Paul is approaching them from a relational base that's rooted in love and true concern for their own good. Paul is for the Corinthians. He's there to shepherd them, not to control them. So I hope you don't miss this. Let this shape your perspective on who Paul was and who our church leaders really should be. Paul didn't exhort and urge and instruct his churches just because he was a strong personality, a type A, a shaper, a mover, an influencer. He may have been those things, but it's because he was the best, most committed dad that you could think of. Paul deeply cared for his spiritual children. He pleaded with them, he corrected them, he explained, he exhorted all of this. Even though it was difficult, all of this was for the benefit of their souls and for ours today. And as a sacrificial father committed to his children, I think uh, his remark in his next letter to the Corinthians really shows his focus. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. How does that verse sit with you? I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. For me to think that someone would care enough about me to be spent for me is inspiring, motivating, and convicting. And to think that I should care enough to spend and be spent is inspiring, motivating, and convicting. This is commitment. So what about you? Are you invested enough to spend and be spent for your brothers and sisters in Christ? You aren't hired to go to church. This isn't a duty. Your Christianness is not a temporary function like a pedagogue. Instead, it's rooted in your relational identity. You've been placed permanently into God's family. And now that you belong, there's a relational role and responsibilities that go along with it. 
You can't just come to service, remain isolated, leave and then disengage for the rest of the week. That's not what it means to be part of God's family. That just means you attended a service. The saying is, don't go to church, be the church, right? And I remember uh, Reed Tossig, you had a, a helpful modification of um, the children's uh, Sunday school nursery rhyme. It goes like this, you know, like, this is a building, this is its steeple, but never forget the church is the people. And I think that's a good way to help remember it. There are dozens of verses that refer to the fact that the church is God's family, it's the people, and it actually refers to it as God's own household. So embrace the role that you've been given as a member in his family. And I think the application here is very simple, but very broad applications, and this is it. If the church is a family, then the church should act like a family. Acting like a family starts with how we treat each other. And this is clearly outlined in a group of what the Bible calls in the New Testament just the one and others. There's about 60 different commands of what you should do, to love one another, submit to one another, um, encourage one another, exhort one another, build one another up, and so on. There's 60 of them, almost. And it simply just defines how we should get along, how we should treat each other, how, should, how we should really relate. It's basically, how does God's household act? The thing is that the Holy Spirit has a vision that is so much grander than just people living parallel, similar lives. God wants his adopted family to be interwoven. He wants us to be all connected. So if you were to continue Paul's metaphor that he gives in chapter 3, he talks about the gospel being the foundation of the church. If the gospel is the foundation, then the framing and the drywall is the one in others that upholds the structure of the church. Jesus, he did not tell that tell his people that the world would know us by our common place of worship, by our theological distinctives, by our shared desire of salvation. He said that the world would know us by our love, by how we treat one another. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The truth is that the lost world is watching, and Jesus said that they would know by whether we love each other. So I'll leave, I'll leave it up to you, but... I would say that the Western world is largely unimpressed by what they see. The relational harmony that's cultivated by practicing one another is for your personal edification, it's for our corporate strengthening, it's for the onlooking world, and it's for God's glory. There's like a lot of purposes for it. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit has commanded it. So that's how we should act. Now let's consider, how should our family be structured? Because how you structure something is how it's going to function. If the church is God's household, then the church should be structured like a household. And that's really important to understand that the church is not something different than the family of God. It's not a social club. It's most certainly not a business. So structuring a household means that its leaders are going to lead relationally. And it's important that they function like fathers with beloved children, that they approach them in a way of love, not in a way of a schoolmaster with its pupils or a manager with their employees. So, and this goes to all levels of leadership. If you serve in Awana or in preaching or in youth group or in home groups or you're in women's ministry or any form of leadership here, care like a father would care for their children. Be invested. Care enough to encourage and to correct. Our church is not perfect, but Orchard does have a father-like eldership structure in place, and that's a very 
unique dynamic in our culture. And it's vital to its health, and it must be maintained. And it's a, unique, a uniqueness that's not just preferential, but it's biblical. One of the leading reasons for the weakening of the American church and the nominalism that we see today is because I think the church's family dynamic has been sacrificed on the altar of professionalism and efficiency. And the sad thing is that the average American attender wouldn't even know what to look like. They can't visualize what we're talking about because it's not practiced very often. Running a church like a family is hard. It's time-consuming, it's emotionally draining, but it's effective, beautiful, and it's biblical. If the Western church is to have a true revival, it's going to require a return to a father-like shepherd and a dismissal of celebrity-based professionals. Believers don't need a professional to imitate. They need examples found in the plain old regular member that's imitating Christ alongside of them. I want to walk alongside a godly man who has a similar routine as myself, similar struggles as myself, and yet manages to find time to, for devotionals and for prayer. That's inspiring, and it shows me that it's possible. The last point I want to make about being God's family is that any healthy family will grow in size and in maturity. The church needs to be a place of loving discipleship and of godly examples. The fellowship needs to go beyond the Sunday morning chatter and extend into each other's sanctification. So think of Paul's commitment that he had to the growth of his spiritual children. Do you love your spiritual family like that? Do you have a sense of dedication and ownership and commitment to them? I want to specifically address the older men and women here for just a moment. I want to exhort you to take the initiative to mentor the younger generations. And why? Because we need it. It's really that simple. You have spiritual wisdom and life experience that we don't. You don't have to be a theologian here. We're not always just struggling with doctrinal things. We're struggling with how to make decisions around careers, parenting, finance, friendships, marriage, education, etc. The whole gamut. We're trying to live a wise Christian life. So older saints, would you consider asking people out to coffee or couples over for dinner or meeting them at their workplace? Wouldn't it be great if godly older women were able to meet in a homeschooling mom's house for brunch or maybe to teach knitting or a, a music lesson or help in some way to connect? I think if you're among the older brothers and sisters of this family, you have a unique, valuable gift that you can offer Believers, we each have a role here in this family, though. So let's commit to each other. And I think that means personal involvement. Paul was committed, and he was personally involved. And he set and sent an example to the Corinthians to follow. So this brings us to our second point. We are to imitate Christ. Let's look at verses uh, 16 and 17 again. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, to, that is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. So the Corinthians already knew Paul's ways. He had taught them that before. But now he wants to remind them. It had been a full year since he had left Corinth and he couldn't return yet, so he sent Timothy, his faithful child, an example that they could follow. So to our ears today, when we look at this, it may seem kind of arrogant 
for Paul insisting that they would follow his example. You know, but Paul's not trying to feed his ego, but so that they would have a tangible example of what it looks like to follow Christ. Later in the letter, Paul says in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The best depiction of Christ available to the Corinthians was Paul. I want you to remember the Gospels hadn't been written yet. The New Testament wasn't compiled. There had been a few other letters that had been written, but they hadn't been circulated yet, and this is their first letter. These are largely new Gentile converts with little to no familiarity with the Jewish scriptures. So these, are, these Corinthians are kind of baby Christians that are still in a fledgling relationship with God. So they need someone to look after them. They need their spiritual father to care for them. Prior to Paul's letter, their only context for Christianity was Paul's teaching and Paul's example. But now we see that there are arrogant guides that are misleading them. Now, according to Paul, the Corinthians should have been further along. He was there for a year and a half. But much like how young children build their understanding of God based on their parents, Paul is asking the Corinthians to follow his example and Timothy's example of the faith. So there's, I think, two main questions that we can look at and ask ourselves around this topic. The first one is, am I faithfully following Christ's example? And the second to ask yourself is, would it be good if people were to imitate me? So as the first one, as to following Christ, fortunately we do have his example and his teaching well documented for us to follow. But how many of us study that example intently? Now perhaps you attend church faithfully, maybe you read spiritual books, listen to other online sermons, but I want you to consider if that's what you do, who is it that you are studying? While it's beneficial to have leaders to imitate The end goal is to imitate Christ. The Corinthians did not have Christ's example documented for them, so they followed Paul, as Paul followed Jesus. We, however, have the complete word of God, and we shouldn't dismiss that. There are many preachers that you can listen to online, books you can read, all godly and edifying. When it comes to other resources, they are immensely helpful and can significantly supplement, add to your growth, but they cannot replace it. They cannot be your sole source. You must be in Scripture yourself. And you must be in it alone at times, not just during Bible study. Because only God's Word is living and active. Only God's Word promises to change and to penetrate your soul. Now, when it comes to following godly men, it's helpful, but just be sure that you are still following Jesus and not men, and not a man's theology about Jesus. Now, we want to be careful not to put men on a pedestal. It's easy to pick our favorites. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing with Apollos and Peter and Paul. Now, we are Christ followers. We're not men followers. And Jesus is the head of the church, not a senior pastor. Leaders of the local church are to be servants that are pointing to our head, to Christ. Now, by all means, we should surround ourselves with godly men and women as examples of what it looks like to imitate Christ and culture in particular. It's immensely helpful to have real-life examples in your own cultural context of obedience to Christ, especially in really practical matters like being a parent or how to teach something or how to shepherd a church, how to witness to coworkers. It's really helpful to see real-life examples there. But be careful that you're viewing their lives as examples of following rather than examples to follow or to mimic. Now, the difference is like this. If you were to go to an archery range, let's say that you're new to archery. I assume that's probably true of most here. 
Um, and let's say that there's an expert archer right next to you. And so you try your hand at it, you completely miss your target. After a few more unsuccessful attempts, you decide you're going to watch the guy next to you. So you carefully observe his posture, the way that he stands, the way that he's upright, and how he pulls back, how far he pulls back, where he holds the arrow on the string, where he positions it on his fingers, the timing of his release, everything, he hits the bullseye. So you try, you mimic, you stand the same way, you pull back and release the same way, and you hit your target. Maybe not the bullseye, but you hit your target. Now, the point is that you hit your own target, not his. You didn't say, hey, can I try your bow? Or, hey, can I try shooting at your target? Maybe that'll be better. Instead, you looked at him, you imitated, you got tips, and then you followed and you used it, that information to help hit your target. When we are following Christ, there are helpful guides and examples, but we need to be careful to keep our eye on Christ and not on man. So back to the first question. Are you faithfully following Christ's example? One gauge of that is, well, what are you studying and how often? Now, as to the second question, are you a helpful example for others to imitate? It depends on who's watching and what they see when they see you. And as to who is watching, a quick example, parents, you know that your kids are. This is an easy one. Parents of young children, especially especially dads, um, do you realize that how you live and relate to them is probably the most significant influence on how they're going to perceive God for their first several years? During a child's first several years, their perspective of God is largely derived by how they view their parents. And that's a very sobering thought. And that's why it's important to mix grace into the parenting can't be overly authoritarian unless you want your kids to infer that God is not a God of grace, but a heavenly policeman. It's also important to be available and attentive and inconvenienced by your kids. You don't want your kids growing up thinking that God doesn't have time for the small things in their life. This is why it's also important to admit fault, to apologize, to ask for forgiveness in front of your kids and of your kids, unless you want your children to struggle with the concept of, could God really forgive me? Those initial impressions that you make will continue to shape much of their future relationship with God, and they can sometimes take years of personal study to fix. Now, as for who else is watching, it's going to vary for everybody here, depending on your environment for work, ministry, and just where you live. Um, but it's probably fair to say that for everyone here, it's more than a few dozen people and possibly many more than that, including a mix of Christians and non-Christians. Now, first off, I hope that there are non-Christians that are watching you because of your own pursuit of them, not just some involuntary arrangement like, well, yeah, you guys work in the same office, but I hope that you are pursuing non-Christians to actually imitate you. There should be lost people that you are developing relationships with, that you've invited into your life, that you've invited to church, that you're praying for, that you're meeting with. Are you producing any spiritual offspring like Paul had? I hope that your heart is burdened for the same people that Jesus came to save. God's expectation is that we are rubbing shoulders with them, not that we're in a holy huddle. Now, as for what people see when they see you, I want you to process this question with two people, two people groups in mind. 
um, the lost in terms of the people who don't personally know Jesus, and then the weaker brother. And by that, I mean really anybody who's chosen to follow Christ and is either really new in their faith or immature in their faith or has wandered away from the faith. These two groups in particular are very sensitive to what they see. And it's important that we're cognizant of what we're portraying. So when the lost or weak see you, do they see Jesus or do they see something else? As God's children, we represent the family name. We are his ambassadors, his agents of reconciliation. But we are to represent his character and his values. But I wonder, do we sometimes get in the way? Now, there are many good things in this life, important things that we ought to value, but we can't let those things compete with Christ. Now, we want to be very clear about the gospel and not show any competing any competing passions. We all have things that we're passionate about, of course, right? Things that we care about, but we don't want it to compete with or distract from the gospel. In our interactions with others, uh, we want to point to Christ, not to ourselves. We should all have the attitude that John the Baptist had. John was actually a very popular man, had crowds that came to see him until Jesus took the spotlight. And when his disciples came to talk to him, and told him that Jesus' disciples were actually baptizing more than he was, here was John's response. He said, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, how many of you are having a hard time focusing right now? (laughs) Right? Okay. Now, you're wondering, what am I doing over here in the corner? Is he going to play the drums? Can Jeff play the drums? I hope he doesn't do something awkward. I've already ruined that for most of you, (laughs) especially my wife. Um, but the point is that some, some of you were thinking that. They were wondering, but I don't, I don't play the drums. But I would guess that almost all of you were thinking about me and not the gospel or not what I'm saying or not this message or not Jesus, right? And I want to illustrate how often do we do that in our witness? How often do we get in the way of what we're actually saying? You're focused on me. You're not focused on what I'm saying, Let's be sure that we are not a stumbling block or a distraction to the gospel. The gospel is offensive enough, we don't need to add to that, right? Now, I will go back to the pulpit in just a minute, but not before I do something else first, okay? I'm going to make some of you uncomfortable. But there are several examples that come to mind of things that are fine to be passionate about, great things that that you should be invested in, but to the onlooking lost, or weaker brother, they're really just a distraction. It can completely derail their understanding of Christianity. So let me give you some examples. Examples like uh, maybe politics and uh, the president, or the Second Amendment and uh, gun control, social justice, also important, and uh, organic foods, vaccinations, young earth and old earth, and uh, Calvinism, Armenianism, types of schooling, right? And the list goes on. I'll spare you the drumming. But the point is that many of these issues we should have an opinion on. They make for interesting discussions. But we need to be able to have those discussions in a very, in a very respectful manner with people that are mature and in an appropriate way. The point that I want to make here is that we need to be careful and consider the value and the timing of these sort of discussions. Our culture is very quick to get offended. I get that. But I'm not asking you to be vanilla on everything. What I am asking is that you be strategic 
about which battles you'll fight and when. Choose battles that are appropriate for your audience. And don't give Satan a foothold to take these personal preferences and use them as stumbling blocks to the gospel. So in all evangelistic speech, this is the main point. Keep the main thing the main thing. And I know that we Americans, we like to speak our minds, so you probably don't like me saying to curb your opinion, but let's listen to how Paul would say this. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So Paul never compromised the message of the gospel, but he sure did sacrifice a lot of his personal preferences and freedoms for the sake of of the gospel. We are to remind people of our ways in Christ, not of our ways in this world, not of our personal preferences. The truth is that when your life is given over to Jesus, he must increase, you must decrease. And there's a net effect of this that is more powerful than the sum of its parts. And what I mean by that is that a corporate witness of an entire church body that's living gospel-centered lives is more powerful than if you were to just add up individual witnesses. And the Corinthians, they were to have that community witness in their locale, but they blew it. They were doing more harm than good. And the distractions that they had, the sin that they had, that became the main focus for the onlooking world. And this was to their shame. Like the example of the children at the beginning who had tarnished the family name to their neighbors, the Corinthians had tarnished the gospel. Now, Paul, being their spiritual father, he was too invested to ignore their unfaithfulness. He was, so he wrote to rebuke them and admonish them in their sin. And he sent Timothy as a reminder with plans to go there himself. This takes us to our last point about being bold, because Paul was confident and bold in his positioning, the position of admonishing their sin. Now, this last point isn't necessarily new material or additional response in this passage. It's more a modification or a descriptor, to how, a descriptor on how you would engage as a family and being faithful as a follower. You are to be bold and confident in how you engage the family of God and how you witness to the lost. But your confidence is not in yourself. Men who are confident in themselves are like the arrogant guides that Paul is singling out here. There's no room for arrogance. Knowledge that just puffs up and destroys. So what was Paul's source of authority and confidence here? It wasn't his earthly credentials, though he had some pretty good ones. It was the fact that he was an apostle, one that was commissioned by Jesus himself, a bondservant of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul gives his twofold job description that God had given him. The first is to preach to the Gentiles. The second he describes in verse 9 as to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Now, Paul explains that the mystery is the church. So Paul's second part of his divinely appointed job is to reveal or illuminate the plan of the church. The word for plan is oikonomia, which means management of household affairs or stewardship. 
So basically, Paul's second job is, was to reveal how the church should be ordered and structured. So he didn't make this up, right? This was not wisdom from his day. This was actually revealing what God wanted for how we should treat each other and how the church ought to be organized. And the passage actually continues in verse 10 to say that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The way that God organized the church is a way that he's going to show his wisdom. So that's something that's not going to change. That's not cultural. That's normative. That's timeless. These weren't Paul's ideas. They were God's. So Paul looks at this and is confident that he is teaching what God has given him. That's where his authority comes from. Paul doesn't just say, oh, well, I suppose they're adults now and they can figure it out or you know, they can make their own decisions now. Paul is carrying out God's commands to them, and he feels a strong responsibility as their father to make sure that they are functioning correctly. So he gives them a warning. He tells them that he could be coming and that they can choose between harsh discipline or gentle discipline. But did you notice he didn't give them a third option of no discipline? He's coming. So how should we respond to this? You know, perhaps Paul's style doesn't jive with your personality. You don't have to threaten others with a literal or a figurative rod. Um, but every believer is to commit to caring and to correction. And it may be uncomfortable. It probably will be. But it is commanded even for you. So I encourage you to be bold in your role in the family of God. You are part of the family, so own that role. Engage meaningfully. Disciple intentionally. Admonish lovingly. Proclaim confidently. Now, for those outside of the family, it's time that we stop sharing the gospel and that we start proclaiming the gospel. Sharing is not declaring. It's not declaring a universal truth. It's really just offering up an opinion. But Proclaiming involves an impassioned appeal to a universal truth that would actually result in repentance and belief. Believers are commissioned ambassadors that are on a mission to proclaim the gospel. And when we have these opportunities to give the gospel, be bold and confident in the words that you use. Don't qualify it or soften it with like, well, I believe or I think that or it's probably this. Just be direct. It's not your message. It's God's message. Be confident and that your authority comes from God, not from you. You've been entrusted with his message. Now, I don't expect many here um, to match Paul's zeal and confidence, but I do think that there's room for growth in most of us here to be bolder and just to remember that this is God's word that we're declaring. And in addition to being bold in our words, what about the opportunities that you're given to point people to Jesus? Be unashamed, unapologetic, and loving about it. Just make it natural because it's who you are. It's your identity. You're being yourself. So, for example, at the next work gathering when they ask the typical icebreaker of how, tell everybody your name, how long you've been with the company, and something you're passionate about, instead of saying, and I'm passionate about fly fishing, why not say, and I'm passionate about my relationship with Jesus? It doesn't have to be weird, but don't forsake those opportunities. So as ambassadors of God, let's be bolder in our witness. Now, for those inside the family, how we relate to each other with boldness, when we see public unfaithfulness to Christ in God's household, it cannot go unaddressed. We see that Paul is admonishing, but it doesn't just stop with people at Paul's level. It's our responsibility to admonish too. 
John MacArthur gave a helpful definition of admonishing. It's to criticize in love with a view toward change. And while much time could be spent on this topic, what I want to leave you with is just to be an engaged family member. Would you let your brother or sister mess up in a huge way that you know is unhealthy for them and contrary to the way that the family should be? So there are things that are not okay to, to know about and to overlook. And it's not just the elder's responsibility. It could be yours. Most every believer has someone that they should admonish. And there's probably just a few that have everybody that they should admonish. So, <laughs> um, to admonish one another is one of the 60-some one-anothers, but it's probably the least practiced one of the whole bunch. It's uncomfortable, and it's frankly un-American to put your nose in someone else's business. But that's just the culture of our country. That's not the culture of the Bible. Christian body life is something that is a family affair. So your sanctification really is in other people's hands to a degree. And if you are a member here at Orchard, then this local congregation is your family. So do you care enough to protect the well-being of your whole family and to restore wayward family members? Remind yourself of the source of your confidence. It's not your own opinion. It's not your own life's example, thankfully. But it's the authority of God's own word. So when you see a brother or a sister that's clearly involved in sin, you are responsible to speak truth to that person. It's for their benefit and restoration, as well as for the protection of the whole body health here. The effects of unaddressed sin, as we'll see in the next chapter, they spread through the whole body. Now, one area of sin that I think is particularly contagious and destructive and common in our American church is spiritual apathy, where believers continue to grow in head knowledge but don't don't grow in maturity or in action or in character. They remain unchanged. It's just a lukewarm approach to Christianity, and that ought to remind you of the church of Laodicea. Now listen to what Jesus says of this church and see if you see some of this. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, by any worldly measure, the American church is rich. Wealthy in finances, programs, resources, staff, whatever it is. But so many of its people are lukewarm toward God and toward each other. And this does not go without a consequence. Now, we can assume that Jesus removed the lampstand or witness from Laodicea and that he's doing so among some of the American denominations today. Lukewarmness or apathy is something that we are undoubtedly observing on a regular basis among professing believers. And if they are within your spiritual family and you are personally connected to them, then you can't let it go unaddressed. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to bring the hammer down. Look at what Paul gave as an option in verse 21. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? There is a way to lovingly admonish on difficult topics. Just remember that the option of no discipline was never on the table. So I'll conclude by telling of another church that eventually lost its lampstand. Now, this was a church that did defend the truth very well. They taught the scripture. They opposed false teachers. They had expert pastors. It's actually Paul spent more time in the city than any other on a missionary journey. Timothy was there for over a decade. And even the Apostle John spent some considerable time there. 
But Jesus' message to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2 depicts a different picture than what you might have expected. This is about 30 years after Paul wrote his uh, second letter to Timothy, and Jesus says to them, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Ephesians didn't deviate from doctrine, but they were severely lacking in love. The congregation did not practice the one another's, and they died out in about the second century. So here's the point. If we are apathetic toward the one another's, if we are indifferent toward intimacy, if we are not invested enough to correct unfaithfulness, then our church will lose its witness and the ability to strengthen believers. Believer, if you are part of this family, then act like it. Engage, care, disciple. Use your gifts to build up the body. Let's imitate Christ together and help each other along the way. Let's hold each other accountable and commit to the family. And above all, let's be known by our love. Please stand as we close in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you care enough about us to correct us when we need discipline. Help us to be faithful to your Son. Um, It's all for your glory. It's not for our own track record. Um, Help us to point people to you and the joy that we have in our hearts to just share that with others. You've uh, given us such a privilege to be part of your family. We want to share that. In your name, amen.